morning, Christ Church. Morning. morning. That uh, second reading from Revelation. <laughs> Thanks be to God. You know, <laughs> you know, we're in a, a series right now in Revelation, going scene by scene. Last week we talked about Revelation 12 and 13, the scene that I called the source of evil. Today we're looking at Revelation 19 and 20, the end of evil, and what I call Judgment Part 1. We'll talk about Judgment Part 1, and we're going to look at questions about judgment. And when we talk about judgment, uh, there are two questions we often hear. On the one hand, we hear questions like the how long questions, like how long, God, are you going to let this go on? How long until you do something about it? We hear that on the one hand, and then on the other hand, we have questions that this judgment seems harsh. It is, does, does God have to judge in this way? Does hell have to exist? Is, it, is that the way that it has to be? We hear these two types of questions, and so we're going to talk about both of them today and try to shed light through Revelation on those types of questions. We're going to talk about Christ's return, about judgment, and about hell. Welcome back, Father Cliff. <laughs> funny this would be the first sermon when, uh, when Cliff returns, but um, I will say, Cliff, we are excited to have you back, and um, we have missed you. We've prayed for you, for your family, and um, just a delight to have you back. And so in just a moment, in fact, after the sermon, during the announcement time, uh, Cliff will take a moment to share and speak a little bit about sabbatical and just some updates, just some life stories. So we'll get to hear that um, in just a little bit. Open your Bibles to Revelation 19 and 20, and again, we're looking at Judgment Part 1. And let me start by saying, why am I saying Judgment Part 1 and Judgment Part 2? Um, why Judgment Part 1 and Judgment Part 2? Next week is going to be one of the most familiar passages in all of Revelation. It's that wipe away every tear, evil's undone, new heavens, new earth, creation, and I'm calling it Judgment Part 2. And you might think, Matt, you're mistitling next week's sermon but I really think biblically, judgment, we think of the word judgment and we instantly hear maybe something like punishment or criticism or we hear uh, just this negative connotation. But biblically, the word judgment, God's judgment, when it comes, it has elements of just restoring what was lost, fixing what was broken, taking the world that has been uh, marred and messed over by sin and destruction and restoring it to what God meant it to be. Judgment, in fact, biblically, is a very good word, positive connotation, things that you would be excited to hear. You would say things like, I'd be excited for God to come back and judge everything. <laughs> we, we would never say that, right? But biblically, you say that. I'm excited for God to return and judge. Let me uh, show you uh, a psalm here. This is Psalm 96. It's one we've prayed here before. And uh, let me just read this out. It says, let the fields exult and everything in the fields. You think of the butterflies and the daffodils and the breeze that, that blows through the tall grasses and the tall reeds. Let everything in the fields exult. And then shall all the trees of the forest, the live oaks, the red buds, even the cedars of, of Austin, can you believe it? They themselves will rejoice. They'll sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. That doesn't sound painful or negative. Healing, trees singing, fields rejoicing. This is like straight out of Middle Earth language. When God comes back, what a joy it will be for creation. It makes me think of that, um, that famous line from Martin Luther King that the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. 
It bends towards things being set right one day again. You know, here's one way that, um, that you might think about it. One of the ways I think about it is a broken bone. If anyone's ever broken a bone, anyone broken bones before? A couple of thumbs up in here, kind of thumbs up sideways. I broke that thumb. <laughs> I, if, if you've broken a bone before, you know, one of the most painful things is actually not the breaking of the bone. It's what comes next. Because you go to the doctor and you get the x-ray and they're looking at the bone and it's not really broken the way it's supposed to be broken, which like you had control over a broken bone, right? You broke your bone. It's not broken the way you want. So what does the doctor do? The first thing the doctor does is re-break the bone and it is a very painful experience, but he sets it right. The doctor sets it right so that it can then heal. Maybe one way to think about this idea of biblical judgment is like this. The diagnosis of the world, there's sin in our hearts, in our economy, in our politics. There's sin in the way that I was parented, and there's sin in the way I parent. There's sins, sin in the way I am befriended by others, and there's sin in the way I am a friend to others. There's sin in the way that People lead me and sin in the way that I lead others. It is everywhere pervasive. Eugene Peterson calls it the catastrophe that is everywhere. I like that word catastrophe, sin as catastrophic, the twisting of all things, the breaking of all things. And this is the judgment part one, which is setting the bone. It's what we're doing today. It's what we're looking at when we look at Revelation 19 and 20, some of those images that we just read that Fill our, fill our minds with some disturbing thoughts. What it really is, is God setting the bone to prepare for next week, the healing, judgment part two, which sets us up for Revelation 19. So we're looking at Revelation 19, verse 11. And um, what we've just had, what we've just had in Revelation verse, uh, 19, chapter 19, verse 1, we've had the wedding supper of the Lamb. You know, this great banquet feast, finally, that the bride is ready. She comes and has this great wedding feast, and we're left with the question, like, when is that going to happen? Like, how are we going to get from where we are now to this wedding supper of the Lamb? And this is how verse 11 starts. It says, there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he wages, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire. You remember, that's a description from chapter 1. And on his head are many crowns. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them, the nations, with an iron scepter. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now, we'll keep this up on the screen for a minute. You can look in your Bible and um, I just want to make a couple of comments about this. First of all, do you remember the last time we saw this white horse? We saw this white horse in chapter 6. This is one of the four horses of the apocalypse. And on the white horse was this conqueror who was riding out to make war. But now there's a new conqueror on this horse. His name is Faithful and True. And he's got this army with him. We've looked at this army before in chapter 7, the Lamb's army. Do you remember their, their weapon is, uh, is the cross, this self-giving love? He's got all of these uh, angels and saints with them all wearing white. He's got this iron scepter. We talked about this last week. This comes out of Psalm 2. This is uh, the long-awaited Messiah, the descendant of David who will rule the world. And then if there's any question about who this figure is, did you notice he was tatted up? 
He's got a tattoo on his thigh. If you've ever wanted, you know, I don't know if I should say this to the youth group, but if you ever want a tattoo and you're wondering what you should say to your parents about it, this might be one verse you could talk to. Although I might tell you the tattoo he has is a tattoo only he himself could have. No one else. If anyone else tries to get tattooed on them, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, I, that is a recipe for a lightning bolt to strike you in the middle of the, the parlor. But he has this, this image on the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Do you know where that comes from? It comes out of the book of Daniel, and it was applied to Yahweh. Suddenly here it's applied to Jesus. Is there any question what the New Testament authors think about who this Messiah is. Jesus is Lord incarnate. God incarnate come down. And he's now the new conqueror riding on this white horse. He's returned to do something, to defeat evil, to conquer the forces of evil. And John is like, I, we talk about this each week, but John is this, he's this poet, he's this artist who's like piling on the descriptions of what kind of king this is. So listen to what we've got here. He's got his eyes blazing to judge the world. You know, it's, it kind of looks like a uh, Marvel superhero. He's riding the great conquering steed. He's followed by the angelic army. He's got the scepter. He's the promised Messiah. He's got the God tattoo on him. But there's something unusual about his appearance. Do you notice what it is? His robe is already bloody before the war has started. Before he's gone into battle, somehow he's wearing a bloodied robe. Why is that? Because the blood is his. This is the blood of the cross, his own blood. We have here a king who conquers, not by a sword, but by his own life given on the cross. True justice being delivered to Jesus as he hangs on the cross. And it's how he rides to conquer the evil powers. The lamb has shed his blood and in doing that, conquered evil. How does he conquer? Does he call his army to fight with him? Does he get a great army together and say, we are all here. Everyone pull out your swords. You're like, this is the Braveheart moment. Get ready. We're all going to like run and assault evil. He actually never tells the army to do anything. He speaks, and a sword comes out of his mouth, which is to say judgment. The word of the Lord is powerful enough to end the enemies of God. I said this last week. There is no opposite of God. It's not like God and Satan are equal players on the battlefield. God simply is, and he doesn't have an opposite. When he returns, he speaks, and this is the end. This is the finality of evil. Perhaps the strangest thing that you'll hear in this whole Revelation series is, you know that final Armageddon battle that you've heard about your whole life? You know, you, you think that there's going to be this great gathering of all the evil forces, and, and then that's going to be the end of days and everything. There actually is no final battle. The, the rider comes, and he speaks, and the war is over before anyone fights. And if there is any question about who's the one doing the action, it's all Jesus. We have no part in this whatsoever other than to be there in his army, supporting, loving, caring, adoring him, saying he is our king and he is the one who conquers. If you've ever thought about salvation, you can't save yourself. Even the act of surrender, you're not saving yourself. He is the one who does all the action, saving, pouring out his grace and his mercy. Here's a king who doesn't wield a literal sword. This is the true king who bleeds for love. And this is what power and authority looks like. We've said this consistently through the book of Revelation. But when you are confronted with true power and true authority, what you'll notice is true power and true authority gives itself away. 
gives itself for the sake of those it loves. True kingship is cross-shaped. Now we're going to get to this question of still wondering how long though? Like how long until this actually happens? Like when does this return so that we can get on with the business of the wedding feast of the lamb? I've seen the supper table. It looks pretty good. And I'd like to get on with that part of it. When is that going to come? And uh, when, when is Christ going to return and begin resetting the bone? And you know, this question, how long? It's a familiar one for John. He's a good pastor. We talk about this. Uh, John is a very good pastor. And he's written multiple times uh, telling them that, that uh, he's got the, the martyrs are asking, how long, how long, how long? This is a repeated theme throughout Revelation. But John actually is never going to answer the question for them. He's never going to tell them this is exactly how long. And so um, when you, you know, pull out some of the, the charts of the end of times and you try to evaluate, did the COVID vaccine plus this war in Europe plus this, does that equal the, the end of time? John's going to tell us you, you simply just can't know. Only, the son, only God himself knows when Christ will come back, when he will actually be sent back to redeem the world. The revelation is not to be read as an almanac about when the end of the world is. It's always been an apocalypse revealing God's character. We're not worried about the charts of when this is going to happen, which is why John keeps telling his people, be patient, be faithful, even to the point of death. That's what counts. That's what matters. Not trying to figure out the exact time code of when this happens. We're more concerned with the who than we are the how long or when it will happen. You remember I said in uh, the first sermon in this series that there were over 60 end-of-the-world predictions alone in the 20th century, all trying to use Revelation, saying this is exactly when Christ is going to come back, whether it's 1988 or Y2K or Great Depression, whenever it is, and all of them were wrong. When we focus that direction on the timeline, we're missing the main point, which is not about the when, but about the who. Who comes back to do this work? There's a, um, there, there's a book uh, that I don't recommend reading, and I don't know that I recommend uh, the movie, but, um, but I really liked it, both the movie and the book. <laughs> no Country for Old Men. I don't know if you've seen a lot of head nods right there. Okay. I wasn't... Didn't know if that'd be the case. This is Texas, so that makes sense. Um, it, there, it really fascinating. There's a character in there. I forget. It's the guy played by Javier Bardem, and um, he, he kind of, what's his name? Chigar. He represents sort of death. Like anywhere he goes, death happens. And it seems like there's no stopping him. There's no like point to his madness. He just, he goes and, and catastrophe, sin. That might be the way to say it. And there's a really interesting line from the Tommy Lee Jones character, the, um, the sheriff, uh, Sheriff Bell, and he says this. He says, I wake up sometimes way in the night, and I know as certain as death that there ain't nothing short of the second coming of Christ that can slow this train. Nothing that can get us out of the catastrophe we're in except the return of Christ. John is telling his churches in Revelation, patiently wait, continue in faithfulness. But he's never going to answer the question, how long or when the end will come. You know, I saw an interesting study this week uh, by the Barna group. I don't know if some of y'all know Barna, but they're a research group and researching different um, 
sort of things going on, especially related to Christianity. And they were pointing out how the up-and-coming young generation has this um, strong and powerful heart towards justice. They're very justice-oriented. And when asked by Barna, where do you get the grounding for that values, the primary place they look is the Bible, and particularly Jesus. That his own, Jesus' own desire to return the world to what is just and what is right. And I think about this, that sometimes it can be scary to have, you know, the next generation come up and to promote injustices, and, um, and it, it can make you feel a little bit uncomfortable because it, how do we deal with this? And it makes me then feel like, am, am I doing something wrong? And the answer, of course, is yes, we all are doing something wrong. We live in the catastrophic world. But I find it interesting that this is a forefront concern of the next generation, Because this is one of the key messages of this passage in Revelation is that justice is one of Jesus' primary concerns. He will come and make judgment on the world. He will fix what is broken. He will reset the brokenness of the world so that it can heal, which we'll hear about next week. And again, I just want to hold up. This is an image we've talked about quite a bit. Um, This is the centering image in all the book of Revelation. The Lamb of God who's given his life for the world. This is your conquering king right here, which is going to become important now as we talk about our next question, um, the question of hell, the final judgment. And I want you to just, as best you can, well, I'll take this slide down in a minute, but as best you can, kind of just imprint this image on your mind. Remember, the, the central image of Revelation, going back to chapter 4, is the lamb who rules at the center of the, the, the throne room, the slain lamb. That's our picture of who Jesus is. So even as we talk about hell and final judgment, keep this pressed upon your mind. Now, hell is one of those doctrines that many Christians have found distasteful. This is not a new opinion. It is not just uh, modern-day Christians, whether ex-evangelicals or deconstructing faith or whatever. Not modern-day Christians who have struggled with hell. Going all the way back to the third century, theologians like Origen have wondered, is is this really the case that this all-powerful, all-good God allows hell? And I don't know that we're going to answer every question today, but at least we're going to move in this direction a little bit. So turn to chapter 20, verse 10, and we're going to look at this famous lake of fire. It says this, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And again, I just want to say, remember who we're dealing with as we speak about hell. So we're dealing with the slain lamb, right? The God who becomes incarnate to rescue, to save, to redeem his creation as we talk about this. But he's also a king, and he can't abide a permanent state of injustice, of abusers never being dealt with, of those who hurt others getting away with it. That would mean that this lamb, this king, is not just. So notice who's in the lake of fire. Here are those who are in the lake of fire. First of all, we have the the false beast, you know, the one who stands for the dark powers of Rome. Then we have the false prophet, this kind of propaganda machine uh, trying to tell the world, status quo, everything's okay. You know, we've got the dragon, the ultimate source of evil is thrown into the lake of fire. Then we have those whose names aren't in the book of life. That is, those who have refused to follow the Lamb. And then get this, death and Hades, meaning the fearful powers of evil, 
are thrown into the lake of fire as well. As Fleming Rutledge says, this is the undoing of death, death being undone. So we remember that. Second of all, we're interpreting Revelation symbolically, and John is painting a picture here. He's a poet, an artist. He's weaving together a holy imagination for us. And so what do we make of these symbols, lake of fire and second death? Um, Let me say, the Bible is never as concerned to describe hell to us as it is to describe heaven. Heaven is the permanent reality for which you were created. Heaven is the really real. It talks much more about heaven, new creations, new earth, than it does about hell. So what we know about hell is a little bit more just speculation. But we know these symbols. So I want to talk about a few of the common symbols for describing this final judgment. First of all, there's the symbol of fire, like a lake of fire. It's reminiscent of that judgment that was upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Secondly, there's this image of darkness, like you're being thrown outside of the city gates late at night into the darkness, the gates being shut behind you, and you're not allowed to enter. You're cast out into the darkness of the night. And I don't know, do you remember um, Socrates, when he was given the choice between, uh, between death and exile from Greece, being shut out from Greece, he chose death. He said, being cast out, being permanently excluded from my homeland was too much for me to bear. Third symbol is destruction, something like the second death, something that means an end. Death doesn't mean continued existence. Death means an end, a finish, ceasing to exist. And these symbols, you start to take them, they kind of start to seem contradictory because it's like, well, if there's fire, doesn't fire light things up? So how is there darkness? Like, how is that supposed to work? And if there's supposed to be unending, like sustained life, well, but death means the end of things, the destroying of things. So how do these symbols all work together? And again, the answer is these symbols are just pointing to a deeper reality of finality. Somehow, there's a final realization that for the dragon and all who follow him are cut off from God, they're cut off from life. And here's the important point is that you remember last week we talked about uh, the source of evil, and I said that the, the source of evil is basically, it's like a horror story, right? And there's always, how many sequels are there to every horror story? Like, how many Halloweens are there? How many, like, they, they just kind of go on forever. At some point, the horror story ends. And this is Jesus saying, there will be an ending. Michael Myers will not go on forever. We will bring this story to conclusion. Eventually, the monsters will die. Which brings me to my third observation, and this is kind of the final one and where we'll land on this sermon. We have so much mercy in Revelation, and still we have hell. Like, God's mercy is so much more powerful than his judgment, and still we have hell. His mercy, when I think of his mercy, I I put these two words together, the power of mercy, which is so great, and still there is hell. That, to me, is a thing that doesn't make the most sense. You know, our our first reading from Ezekiel said, does God take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? No. He wants people to turn and be healed. Some theologians have taught that God's mercy is so powerful, so great, that in the end, it will reach down into hell and rescue absolutely everyone. That in the end, even hell itself will be emptied. The church has never concluded this is what scripture teaches. This view has been condemned. However, there's this instinct of hope, like, God, maybe your mercy is powerful enough to do something like that. Like, maybe your mercy is 
more powerful than I've ever yet imagined before. If this is the picture of who you are, if you're the God who on high creates creatures knowing we might turn from you and you willingly step down and die on a cross, what might you still do to rescue your creation? The question of hell always has to be framed that way. You know, sometimes we wonder about people, what about people who have never heard of God's love? Or what about infants who die young? And what we're asking for is we kind of want the rules of the game. Like, do you tell us, God, like, do you have to confess with your mouth? Do you have to be baptized? Who definitely gets in? We're trying to control God. And anytime you do that, just stop. You can't control God. Just recognize his mercy, the slain lamb. Whenever anyone asks this kind of question, my answer is always consistent. I believe in the character of God who is the conquering king and the slain lamb, his powerful mercy. So maybe in one of those societies where they perhaps don't believe in Christ and someone dies having never heard of an opportunity to believe in Jesus, you've probably heard of people in societies like that who have dreams of Jesus visiting them. And they wake up and get, you know, have this encounter, I've met Jesus, I've met God and he's real. I know someone like that. It is a powerful story when you meet someone like that. Maybe in God's powerful mercy, at the moment of death, anyone who never hears, perhaps he shows up as a dream in their last moments of life. I'm not sure. Maybe for um, children who have died young or perhaps even in the womb, maybe there's a way in God's mercy that he even matures them intellectually to give them an opportunity to somehow know him, somehow see him. Maybe he does. His mercy to me is not what should be limited if this is the picture of who he really is. If the cross reveals ultimately the heart of God and the power of his mercy, then I don't want to limit the power of that mercy. If I was in the Old Testament looking forward saying, how is death going to be defeated? I'll bet it'll be by a cross and a resurrection. (laughs) I would be way off. I can't imagine the limits of his mercy. God's mercy is greater than I thought, and also his judgment is more extensive. In the end, all of us will stand before the throne. We will all be judged, and it is only by his mercy that he will rescue any of us. So what a mercy it must be. What is hell? Hell is the permanent state of refusing God's mercy, refusing his healing, not allowing him to reset your bones and offer you healing, and only those who want nothing to do with life would ever be offered this choice, handed over to the second death. This is the judgment part one, Christ coming back to to fix, to heal, to reset the bones, and next week we'll talk about judgment part two, what happens when that bone is set and the world begins to heal properly. Pray with me. Kind Father, your, as that song that we sing often says, your mercy is more, more than we can imagine. Even as we consider state of hell, your mercy still is more. God, would you flood our hearts with your mercy? I just have the image of our, our hearts are like cups, and there is just this tidal wave force of mercy slamming down on top of our hearts. Would you expand our hearts to catch more drops of your mercy? That is when we will be healed. That is when we will be delighted. That is when we will share with the world that there is goodness to be had in Jesus Christ. We ask and pray all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.